If you open your Bible this morning to Philippians 1, verse 6 through 11, and if you don't have a Bible, Matt has Bibles, just raise your hand and he'll get you one. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Well, it's good to gather with you on this Sunday. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if this is your first time being with us this morning, grateful that God has brought you. Uh, as Eric said earlier, no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, uh, we, our hope and our desire as a church is that you would feel like this is a community you can be a part of no matter where you're at on your journey and that we can help one another along the way as we seek to know Jesus and follow Jesus together. So grateful to be with you this morning and open up God's word with you, uh, with you now. So before we do that, though, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and, uh, and ask him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we come before you this morning, and I hope, my, my hope, my desire for all of us this morning is that we would come expectantly to you. That God, as we have come in to gather this morning from lots of different things going on in our lives, both good and bad, challenging, exciting, Lord, I, I want us to come this morning just looking for you to speak to us, looking for you to encourage us, looking for you by the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us even as we sit here in our seats this morning. And Lord, that's not because I have eloquent words to share this morning. It's because your Holy Spirit is present with us. And God, you are present with us. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would work in this time this morning, that you would do a work in our hearts, our minds, our lives today because we are sitting under your word, allowing your word to interpret our lives. And so, Lord, we come humbly this morning before you. And if we're coming pridefully to you, I pray that you'd lead us to repentance, that we could come humbly before you this morning. As I read in the Psalms this morning, an invitation to come and hear, come and hear what the Lord has done. God, may that be the posture of our hearts this morning, that we would gather to hear from you here and now. And so God, would you open up our minds, open up our hearts, our ears, our eyes to see, to hear, to receive, to taste and see that you are good I pray that you remove distraction from our minds, that we would, even for this moment, be able to set those things aside, both literally and figuratively, set those things aside this morning just to hear from you, God. I plead, God, would you please speak to us today through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, uh, a friend of mine uh, and mentor encouraged me to start reading more fiction instead of just reading only books about ministry or theology. He said, hey, you look, that's good. You need to continue to do that. But I encourage you to read fiction as well. Give your brain a break from all that. And also just to 
learn about storytelling and creativity. And so I've tried to do that over the last few years to pick up different books of fiction uh, and to dive into those. And so even over this past summer, I was able to read through several really good fiction books. I read through Gilead and Home by Marilyn Robinson. If you haven't read those books, really encourage you to read them. They're really good. I finally read To Kill a Mockingbird. I never read that. Uh, And so I finally sat down and read that and flew through that in a few weeks. So good uh, to read that book by Harper Lee, a classic. Uh, But then I needed something else to read, and I said, okay, I'm on the kind of this classic kick now. I read To Kill a Mockingbird finally. What's another classic novel that I could read? I asked around a few different people, uh, hey, what should I read? What would be a good classic novel to read? Because there are many that I could choose from. And so after talking to a few folks, thinking about it a little bit, I made my choice, and I decided to read Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, which if you don't know much about the book, I'm not going to try and give you the, uh, the, the premise of that book. All you need to know right now is that the version that I have uh, that's translated into English, the version I have is a thousand pages long. And so um, I am slowly making my way through that book. Amy thinks it's funny that I pick a thousand page book to read through uh, for fun. And so, uh, but I'm, I'm about 200 pages in right now, a little over 200 pages in, and it's, we're moving, moving right along. And I figured that if I can read about 10 pages a day, uh, and I usually read fiction books before I go to bed at night, if I could read about 10 pages a day, then I should be able to finish by the end of the year. A reasonable time frame, right? A good goal to have that I can actually maybe do that. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if I finish the book or not. I mean, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Nothing will be lost other than a cultural experience for me, a personal goal for myself. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really affect anyone if I do or don't read this book. If that book remains on my nightstand for the next 50 years of my life, it really doesn't matter. And that's kind of the case with most creative endeavors that we pursue. I mean, how many of us have unfinished books laying around our homes books that we had ambitions to start and read, but that bookmark hasn't moved in a really, really long time. Or we have unfinished projects around our homes that we've either forgotten about or given up on altogether or just set aside due to other circumstances. I think all of us at some level know there's those things that we just haven't quite finished. Well, today as we continue on in this new sermon series, in this short but powerful book of Philippians, a sermon series that we're calling Rejoice, Paul, the writer, the author of this letter, continues to pastor his friends, and he continues to seek to encourage his friends, and he's encouraging them as they navigate the challenges of striving to follow Jesus, and in particular, striving to follow Jesus in a fallen, broken, messy world. But what Paul says to them is important for each of us to pay attention to as well, to take to heart in our own lives, because you too, if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with Christ, find yourself in a very similar situation. We all are seeking to strive to follow Jesus in the same fallen, broken, and messy world. So what we're going to focus on today, the encouragement that Paul gives to the Philippians, the encouragement that Paul gives to us today from God's word is this. God will finish what he started in you. God will finish what he started in you. As you and I encounter setbacks in life, discouragements, distractions, 
both in our individual lives and our life together as a church, my hope is, is that this truth will encourage you to stay the course. Encourage you to stay the course and trust that God is faithful. He's faithful to his plans. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. My hope is that it will encourage you to believe that he is indeed at work. So let's go ahead and jump into Philippians chapter 1 once again this morning. As I mentioned last week, uh, going through verses 3 through 5, that this section really goes from verses 3 through 11. And so last week was kind of part 1, and now we're jumping into uh, what's kind of a part 2 to this section of Scripture. And the main focus of today's text is directly connected back to what Paul just talked about in verses 3 through 5. Last week we looked at this idea of joyful partnership and Paul was telling the Philippians that he's so thankful for them and he often prays for them and he thanks God for them and he lifts up requests on behalf of the Philippians before the living God and when he does so, he doesn't do it in a complaining way or bemoaning way or frustrated way with the Philippians, he does it with joy And he has so much joy because of this partnership they have together in the gospel. What we'll see today is, though, is what Paul says in verses 3 through 5 and what he says in verses 7 through 11 really help us to understand more, and it really centers around the truth that he proclaims in verse 6. And there's two main points for our time in God's Word today, so let's jump into the first one this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, a good work started A good work started. Paul has just said again that he prays often for the Philippians. And then he makes this statement in verse 6. If you're looking at your Bible, the very beginning of that, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Now, what's that phrase, good work, mean? We could probably go around the room and, and discuss that. I understand the word good. I understand the word work. But what is Paul talking about? At its core, at its base level, This is talking about the creative activity of God. The creative activity of God. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we see that God speaks creation into existence. Out of the words of his mouth, he calls all of creation into existence. Out of nothing, makes everything, and declares it what? Good. He says, this is a good work that I've done. And so we see that God is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He created you. And in this very moment, as you sit in the seat you're sitting in this morning, he is sustaining your life. But that's not the only thing that Paul's trying to get at here this morning. See, the good work that God has begun, that Paul is focusing in on this morning as we look at this text, is that he brought about new life in your life. Paul is reminding the Philippians, he's reminding us that God has turned people who were utterly and completely spiritually dead into living and loving replicas of Jesus. The good work that he has begun is saving you from your sin, rescuing you from spiritual death, and making you alive in Christ. But notice what Paul says, he is the one who began this good work. God is the one who began that work. You didn't figure it out on your own. You you didn't come before God to present yourself as a reasonable and good candidate for regeneration and renewal. God, pick me. I I think you'll be satisfied with what I can offer to you. No, friends, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Children of wrath, following the course of this world, but God chose you. 
And he began a good work in you. He gave you a spark of faith to follow Jesus. He made you a beloved child of God. That is good news. It's amazing news. It's the best news that any of us could ever hear or believe. And for every person in this room who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, this is true for you. Some of you experienced that good work started many years ago. Maybe your story is that you grew up in a home where Jesus was talked about regularly, often. You can't remember a time in your life where you didn't know Jesus, that you didn't have a faith in Jesus. Some of you, it happened many years ago, not because you grew up in that type of home, but just because you've lived some life now. And then you've been following Jesus for a while. Some of you, that good work began started more recently, maybe in the last few months, the last few years, you didn't have that experience, but a a friend talked to you about Jesus, or you heard a sermon about Jesus, and you, you heard the gospel, and you believed, and God began this work in you. Some of you have come to this understanding, have come to this beginning of this good work here, even at Sojourn. Some of you came in here gathering with the church, maybe for the first time, hearing and seeing the reality of the gospel on display before you. Some of you came to gather and be a part of this church having thought that you knew Christ, been around the church for a really long time, but maybe heard Jesus and the gospel talked about in a way that you've never heard before, and God has done a work in your life. And I, and I know this because I know your stories. One of my favorite things that I get to do as a pastor in this church when we do membership, the membership process is sit down with you one-on-one and hear about how Jesus saved you. I love that because it's unique to each one of you. But it's the same for each one of you because it's the same God who saves in the same way. And it's a cause and a source of joy for me to think about you and the work that God has begun in you, to think about who you are, who you once were, and what your life would be like if God had not invaded your life and brought you to understand your need for him. It's amazing grace, absolutely amazing. But listen, no matter when this good work was started in your life, what is true for every single one of us who are in Christ is that God has done a radical work in your life. I don't want us to ever forget that. I don't want us to miss that. Your testimony of being saved from your sin is never boring. And my guess is in a room this big that there are some of you this morning that think, well, man, I wish that I had something more exciting to share about how Jesus saved me. I don't have one of those stories where I came to know Christ later in life, I, I would guess some of you, if you haven't expressed this verbally, at least have thought it, thought it before, man, I wish that I didn't meet Jesus as early as I met him because then I'd have a more exciting story. People would be more compelled to listen to what I have to say. But friends, we need to understand that no matter what your testimony is, it is a proclamation. As you t- vocalize it, as you share it to other people, it's a proclamation of radical grace and a miraculous work. Because do you remember That before Christ invaded your life, you were dead in your sin. And God brought about new life. You were dead and he resurrected you. There's nothing boring about that. Whether that happened when you were a little kid or happened when you were 50 years old, it is amazing grace that we should never think is not exciting and something we should share and testify to God beginning that good work in us. But that's not all that Paul relates to us in this text this morning. The good work that he has begun in you is not only saving you from your sin, though that would be enough for us to worship our God forever and ever. 
He did not only adopt you into his family, welcome you not just into his kingdom, but to his table to call you a beloved child of God, though that would be enough for us to praise our God for all eternity. No, he also made you a new creation in Christ. As we talked about a few weeks ago, he made you a saint, no longer a sinner, holy and set apart in Christ. See, friends, the reality of the gospel, the good news that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary, sacrificial death for you and was raised again from the grave, when that comes to bear on your life, it changes everything for you. So the question for us this morning, though, why does Paul say this right here in the midst of this letter at this point in time as he's writing to the Philippians? Again, last week he's been talking about praying for them. And so it's likely that he's writing, that he's praying for them, that he actually, in that moment, is led to pray for them. And so the truth he declares in verse 6 is an outflow of joyful prayer, about joyful partnership in the gospel, and being led by the Holy Spirit as all of God's Word is inspired by him, by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit in a prophetic, exhortative way. As he prays to them, he's led to give them an anchoring truth. An anchoring truth. Because see, when I look at this text, what I see as we read even through the rest of this letter is that the Philippian church is at a tipping point. They've been faithful partners in the gospel. They've been following Jesus, but they're at this tipping point. Are they going to continue to do that? Because they're struggling. They're, being, they're distracted with different things going on in life. At this point in time, this church that he's writing to is roughly 10 years old. And so they're distracted with the things of life. They're discouraged as they experience persecution, as they see their very friend Paul sitting in a prison cell for preaching Jesus. There's discouragement that's starting to rise up within them. Will they keep pursuing their God and King? They're being tossed to and fro on the raging seas of life, lost in a lost and declining culture that surrounds them, a culture that's set against God, that's set against His ways. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning, feeling distracted, feeling discouraged. Maybe you come in here this morning wavering on walking away from Jesus, struggling to stay the course. Maybe you're just weary from the burdens of life, tired of wrestling with the same things over and over and over again, overwhelmed by all that's required of you. Maybe you're just bored bored with the monotony of the day-to-day of life. Maybe you're wading through doubts or overrun by persecution or ridicule for your faith. Maybe you're just exhausted from the challenges of relationships. See, Paul has encouraged the Philippians by telling them that he gives joyful thanks for them and their partnership, but now what he's seeking to do, just even in this one line in verse 6 here, is he's seeking to encourage them and he's seeking to encourage us to keep moving forward in faith in light of his prayer. But see, his encouragement to move forward in faith is not because of their own strength. It's not because of their own abilities or even their own faithfulness. He's encouraging them to move forward in faith because of the faithfulness of God. See, this is not just a good work started, but then you're left to your own to figure out what life and faith and following Jesus and community is supposed to look like. No, this is a good work that will be finished. And so our second point this morning is a good work finished. Let's look at verse 6 again. 
And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do we see this? This is not just a statement of truth that Paul is making. It's actually a promise. And it's an amazing promise at that. The same God who began a good work in you is the same God who will bring that good work to completion. Do we hear what Paul is saying? Is it sinking into your heart and mind this morning? God doesn't just save you from your sin. He also promises that he will do a transforming work in your life. In other words, there is no salvation that does not include a transformed life. A life of becoming more and more and more like Jesus and this is hard a lot of times, because when we look at our lives, we may not always see or feel a lot of progress. And the good news about this letter in Philippians is we get to talk about it several times as we go through it over the course of this sermon series. But let me encourage you with this this morning. Notice that what Paul is saying here isn't about whether or not you are feeling particularly sanctified, whether you're feeling particularly set apart, whether or not you're feeling that God is at work in you. Feelings are important. Emotions are good things. We could learn more about that as followers of Jesus, but what he's focused on this morning isn't feelings. It's not about your feelings. It's about God's faithfulness. See, Paul doesn't say that he knows that since God began a good work, that you will now finish that work. No, from beginning to end, it's focused on the God who started and the God who will finish what he started in you. So if you are in Christ, if you are united to him, your confidence is not in your ability to keep holding fast to Jesus. Your confidence is the fact that he will hold fast to you. If God has called you to faith in Christ, he will see you all the way home. He will not lose you. Friends, I want us to be encouraged. This is an amazing encouragement that Paul gives us this morning. But I don't want us just to sit here and feel encouraged in this moment. And then as we go out through the week this week, we kind of forget about it. So, so how does this truth affect you as you go about your week? Well, I want to give you three or, three or four things this morning. This truth of verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. That truth, it gives you rest. It gives you rest. When you're going about your week, weary from the struggles and challenges of life, when you're striving to walk in obedience, striving to walk in holiness, maybe for some of you that's fighting to overcome sexual sin, it's fighting to, to overcome anger, maybe it's with your roommates or your spouse or with your kids, friends, maybe you're fighting to overcome laziness or arrogance or control, or discontentedness in life right now. Maybe you're just fighting for joy in a joy-sucking world. Whatever it is, you can rest because of the reality of this text, because our God is at work in you. For me, when I feel frustrated or anxious, even about what's going on in the life of our church, when I, when I want to see God doing certain things, or I, I kind of have this ideal reality of what I want us to be doing, where I hope that we're, what we're doing together as a church, but I have the the ideal, but then the reality, and there's this gap that exists between the two. It's easy for me to get focused on that and to feel anxious, to feel frustrated by that. But it allows me, when I go back to verse 6, to rest because our God is at work in us. And so this truth that it gives you 
rest. It also, as you go throughout the week, it enables you to rejoice. Friends, God isn't done working in you. He didn't just kind of say, well, it's good enough. I'll just let that person go and we'll just be satisfied with C minus work. No, he's still working to make you more like your Savior, and he's doing it from one degree of glory to another. Listen, he is more committed to your holiness than anyone else is, including you. He's more committed to making you like Jesus, and he will do whatever it takes to restore the image of God in you. So yes, that means he will discipline you. And yes, he will allow trial in your life to bring about his good purposes in your life. But friends, he does not condemn you. He does not look at you and regret that he saved you. He does not look at you and think that you are a lost cause. No, he who began a good work in you embraces you by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So for that, my friends, as we go throughout the week and we struggle and we walk, we should stop in those moments and rejoice. God is at work in you and he will finish what he started. And the truth of verse 6 also allows us to rest and enables us to rejoice. And it should change the way that we view ourselves and others. Because you are no longer identified by your rebellion against God. You are no longer identified as being at enmity with God. You are no longer defined by your sin. You are a saint in Christ. And Ephesians chapter 2 also says that if we've been saved by grace through faith, we are now God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. He created you, and by grace he saved you. And the good news of the gospel, it is also by grace that he's recreating you. And it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And I know I said this a few weeks ago, but I, but I want to remind you of it again this morning because my guess is that a lot of us have forgotten this truth. Because of what Jesus has done for you, if you've placed your faith in him, you are now a beloved child of God. God is your father. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. You are loved by Jesus. And so when you wake up some morning this week and you're struggling to get out of bed or get going throughout your day, when you take a break on a busy Thursday afternoon and you're overwhelmed with everything that's going on in your life or at work this week, when you go into the bathroom to hide from your kids for just five minutes because that's the only place, quiet moment you're going to have throughout the day in a given week, would you just stop in that moment Maybe find a mirror to look in, look at your own reflection in your own eyes, look at yourself and say to yourself, rejoice in yourself as you view yourself, God is still at work in me. He's still working in me. He's not done with me yet. You can view yourself differently as a work in progress. God will see through to completion. But here's where I don't want us to miss something else absolutely critical about verse 6. When Paul says, he who began a good work in you, he's saying, he who began a good work in you. So for my southern friends, he who began a good work in y'all. That, that's, that's what Paul is saying here. This is a plural you. He's talking about the church at Philippi as a collective whole, not a bunch of disconnected individuals. See, my guess is most of us, as we read the scriptures, when we see the word you, we just think of me. But more often than not, when we see the word you in scripture, it's actually referring to the community as a whole. 
And so what he's saying here is that God, when he saves you, yes, he saves you from your sin as an individual, but not merely as an individual. He saves you and then places you into a family, places you into a community. And so the good work that God has begun and the good work that God will finish is the formation and the transformation of the community of Christ followers, which includes your individual lives. He's working in each of you individually, molding and shaping you to become more like Jesus, but that's so collectively he can finish what he started in us together. Brothers and sisters, when you truly embrace Christ and his love for you, it changes the way you think about life. It changes the way you think about relationships. You can't look at each other the same way. When Jesus truly changes your life, you want Jesus to truly change other people's lives. Because you've experienced that redemption. So what does that mean practically for us as we think about how we view ourselves differently and one another? See, when you understand and believe that God is at work in you and that God is at work in the brothers and sisters around you, you don't lose heart over sin and shortcomings. You don't throw up your hands in disgust over those things, thinking nothing is ever going to change in my life, nothing's ever going to change in that person's life. No, instead, you can encourage one another. You can encourage one another to keep fighting the fight of faith and joy in the midst of the challenges of life. We take sin seriously, but we have a great Savior. So every time we look at sin in someone else's life, we should quickly point them to their Savior. If we take one look at sin, we take thousands of looks to Jesus. I forget who said that, but that's a thing that we need to come back to over and over again. And we can encourage one another in that. When you know that God will finish what he started in those around you, that means then is you aren't someone with a critical spirit, but you're an extraordinary encourager to keep running the race laid out before you. You remind those around you of who they are in Christ. I mean, if we really believe the reality of verse 6, how might God impact our relationships with one another? If we really believe verse 6, how might he impact marriages that are in this church? You think about your husband differently, your wife differently. Instead of being frustrated with their shortcomings and sin and how that affects you, would you maybe stand back for a second and think, oh, God's placed me in their life to help them become more like Jesus. To run that race with them, to keep fanning that flame of faith, to encourage them to run, knowing that God is not done with them yet. But that doesn't just apply to marriage relationships. We can get to be, in, we're a family together, brothers and sisters. So what does it look like? How would it impact us as we think about how we relate to one another? How would we communicate with one another? What would we communicate with one another if we really believe this? This past week, Amy and I had a, uh, a design and build firm come to our house to kind of look at our house and see if it's possible for us to do some renovations to add on to our house. If you've been in our house before, our bedrooms are really tiny. Our kids are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, my daughter's room is about the size of most people's walk-in closets, and so we're just trying to think through, okay, can we stay here for a while, or do we need to eventually figure out somewhere else to go? And we really like where we live, and, and we're, we're building relationships with our neighbors, and so we'd love to stay where we live. And so we had this, this group come over to say, hey, is there anything we can actually do? Can we renovate our house instead of having to move somewhere different? And the idea of renovation is interesting, right? I mean, renovating something is taking something that exists and seeking to transform it or to, to change it. It's not annihilating the, it. I mean, that happens around Fairfax now, right? Like, 
There's houses that were once there, and then all of a sudden they get bulldozed over, and then a new house is built. That's not renovation. That's demolition. Renovation is about repairing something and making something new with what's there. Brothers and sisters, God is renovating your life. He's not destroying you, saying, I messed up on you. No, sin has jacked up your life, and God is renovating your life. He's repairing you. He's transforming you. He's restoring the image of Christ in you. But how he's doing that is through grace-filled people, through spirit-filled people who have committed to you and you to them. See, what a gift of grace gospel community is when we realize how vital we actually are to one another, how much we are needed in each other's lives. That when you come to gather here on a Sunday morning, that you don't just come for you, but you come for the people around you. My brother, uh, uh, Edward, is struggling this morning with uh, just head stuff and, and, and things going on from a concussion he had a while ago, and he's not here this morning. And I was legitimately sad this morning because I miss him being here. Not because I think he needs to be here because, he, man, he needs to hear this. I mean, maybe he does. But I miss him being here because I need him to be here. And you need him to be here. And there's someone not here this morning. There's an empty seat next to you this morning. And if you can think about who is that person that's not here this morning, you need them to be here for you. And they need you to be here. And it's not just Sunday morning. It's all throughout the week as well. If we really realize the vitalness of community, of what it means for us to actually be involved in one another's lives, then we don't just think about ourselves in those moments. We think about, God, what do you want me to do to encourage people around me? to help them to keep running the race, to remember that you still have a work of renovation that you're doing in their lives. But listen, as I said last week, committed community is messy. It's really messy. We're not going to get it right all the time in each other's lives, and maybe we're not going to get it right most of the time in each other's lives. Even for just me personally as one of your pastors, I will say and do things I have said and done things that are not helpful to you. Perhaps, and I hope not, but I've said and done things that are hurtful to you. But that's not because I don't care for you. That's not because I don't love you. I I care a lot about you. But I'm going to do those things. I'm going to mess up along the way because I also am still a work in progress. And I need you to help me to move forward in faith. The same thing is true for each person in this community. So we're going to hurt one another. We're going to sin against one another. But we can help one another by actually acknowledging that hurt and then extending grace and moving forward in faith and humility with one another, knowing that God is at work in you. He's at work in us. And he will finish what he started. Verse 6 helps us believe and embrace the reality that we really are better together than we are alone. See, when we read a text like this, we need to have a long view of life together. Following Jesus as a disciple of Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. It's not a microwave experience. It's not something for you just to kind of pop in and out on. It is a commitment to stick with one another and stick with Jesus. And so will you stick with it Will you stick with one another to see God continue to work in each other's lives? And this is why the truth of this text also impacts how we pray. 
how we pray for ourselves and how we pray for one another. And we get an example of that in verses 7 through 11. That's, I think, what Paul is doing in verses 7 through 11. He's saying, God has begun a good work in you. He will finish a good work in you. And so I'm going to pray for that. And this is the kind of things he's praying for them. In verses 7 through 8, he just is reiterating again his deep love and affection for the Philippians and their partnership in the gospel. It's a prayer of a pastor who cares deeply for this church and desires intensely for them to become more and more like Jesus. But notice something about what he prays for them. He doesn't praise for their effectiveness in ministry. He prays that this good work that God has begun, that he will do more of in their life, it's more about what God's doing in them rather than what he's doing through them. And so what Paul prays, he's praying for in verses 9 through 11, what he prays there is really an outflow of the truth of verse 6. And Paul prays not wondering if God will answer this prayer, like, God, I hope you'll do this. No, he prays confidently knowing that he will answer this prayer. He prays for several things, and I think these are all things that, that practically speaking, as we think about praying for ourselves, as we think about praying for the community that we're a part of, that we also can pray for one another. He prays that love may abound more and more among them. This is not some cultural view of love. This is a deep-rooted love, rooted in the character of God and his love for us. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, and one like it is to love others as yourself, to love God and love others more than yourself, which we're also going to learn more about in Philippians. But those are two things that you are not able to do apart from Christ changing your life. You only love yourself until Jesus transforms you. But now because you're a new creation in Christ, Paul can pray, we can see God working to empower us as new creations to be people who do that, who love more and more, who have love that abounds more and more. And this love, though, is not detached. It's connected to our knowledge of God. And so he also prays that may love, and ab- love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And Paul's not just concerned with theology for theology's sake. This isn't just about more information or knowledge for knowledge's sake. When he talks about knowing, it's a, it's a deep personal knowing. It's an intimate relational knowing. And just as love is not sentimentality, Knowledge is not just a bunch of information. The two are connected together. Paul wants them to abound more and more in love, but it comes with knowledge because as you know more of who your God is, you grow in your love for him. And as you grow in your love for him, you want to know him more. And that cycle continues on and on and on. Our God is inexhaustible. There's never going to be a point in time or all eternity where you arrive at the end of God and say, I'm good. I think I know enough about you. I don't need to know any more about you. No, it just continues to go forever and ever, and our love for God and for others increases forever and ever as we plumb the depths of who our God is. And so Paul prays, God, finish that kind of work in these people. But he also, notice what he says, he says also he prays for all discernment for them. He wants God to finish this good work he started, and one of the things to do that for Paul that he specifically prays for is discernment. And something I think all of us could grow in. I think spiritual discernment in the American church is at an all-time low. There's so many things going on in our culture, so many blogs and books and sermons on the radio or podcasts, and there's such a low level of discernment that we think anything and everything that mentions Jesus must be true. But the scary thing about false teaching is that 90% of it oftentimes is true. 
It's just the 10%, the little bit that sneaks in there that's completely false gospel. And so we need to pray, God, if you're going to finish this good work in me, if you're going to finish this good work in us, would you give us greater discernment? There's so much in pop Christianity right now that's so self-focused that you can do this on your own. You can make yourself a better person. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not true. You maybe have heard before, God's never going to give you something more than you can handle in your life. That is a lie. God constantly gives you more than you can handle in your life so that you're dependent on him, not on yourself. When we read through the book of Philippians, when we read through the scriptures, what we see is not a self-focused life. We see a God-centered life, an others-focused life. But we're not going to know that if our discernment isn't increased. And spiritual discernment increases as we grow in our knowledge of God and his word and as we help one another to do that. And so we can be praying for that. But it doesn't just end with that. Notice what he says in verse 10. There's a reason for it. So that I'm praying that love would abound with knowledge and all discernment. For what reason? So that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That you might bear out fruit of righteousness. That you might glorify God in your life. What he's praying is that all these things would lead to them living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. They would pursue and become more like Jesus in a world that is continually and constantly set against Jesus. He wants to see this come to the fullness of what God desires for them to finish that good work he began in them, either when Jesus returns or calls us home. Now, There's one other helpful thing for us, I think, to take note of here that can really impact our community if we take it to heart. Notice what Paul's doing here. He's telling the Philippians that he's praying these specific things for them. And so what he's doing is he's saying, I talked to God about you before I talked to you. He didn't just come and say, hey, I see some stuff in your life that you could work on. I see some things in your life you could correct. No, first he says, I'm going to go to God with those things. I'm going to pray and ask God to do this work in you before I come to you with it. And friends, what would God do in our own lives, our own community, if we did the same thing? If we prayed like this for ourselves, before we got to work, we started on our knees. What would he do in our relationships with one another if we talked to God about one another before we talked to one another? What might God do if we persistently prayed in this way for one another, for God to finish what he started in each other's lives? What if we actually let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit in one another's lives? God is the one doing this work. We just get to participate and partner with him in it. And we can have total and complete confidence that this work will not be like that unfinished book on your nightstand or that unfinished project in your house, that it's not a guess whether or not it will happen. Let's not miss a key phrase in this text. In verse 6, Paul says, I am sure of this. Other translations of the English text say, I am confident of this. He doesn't say, I hope, maybe it'll happen. I am sure of this. As a church, we have what we're calling these 16 confident hopes, things we are praying and asking God to cultivate in the culture and the life of our church as we seek to be a community who makes disciples. But when we look at verse 6, verse 6 is the confident hopes above all confident hopes. Paul is confident in this church. He's confident in the work that is happening in them and through them, not because of their gifts, not because of their abilities. He is confident in this church because of the character and the nature of the God who called it into existence in the first place. 
and he will hold it together. And I have the same confidence and hope for you because I already see this in you. It's my deepest assurance that God is at work in you right now, individually and corporately together. It's my deepest assurance because I can read verse 6 and I can have that confidence because our God is unchanging. And for those of you, though, that are suffering, for those of you that are struggling, maybe right now you don't feel like God is at work in you, but my friends, I am confident even if you're not confident. I'm confident for you. This community is confident for you. It's why we need each other. I'm confident that he is at work even in the midst of your struggles right now and that he always will be. I know he will finish the good work he started in you because of Jesus' finished work on the cross for you. He's already made it abundantly clear that we can trust in what he says. It's God's work, God's power, our participation, our partnership that will allow us to be faithful to be and do all that God has called us to be and do until Jesus comes again. Friends, he has begun a good work, but that work isn't over yet. It's just the beginning in your individual life. It's just the beginning in our church together and Lord willing in the many lives that we will impact together. And we have a long way to go, but we can celebrate where we are by looking at where we've come from that if you know Christ this morning and you look around this morning, even as we take communion today and see brothers and sisters eating the bread and drinking the cup, rejoice this morning that those used to be dead people, but God raised them to new life in Christ. Let's celebrate where we've come from. Let's celebrate the fact that there once was not a church called Sojourn here in Fairfax, but God is using that to impact our lives and people around us. And then let's dream big and ask God to do things that only he can do and take steps of faith and action, looking ahead in hopefulness. For God, where, where God will take us. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. God will finish what he started in you. And to that I say yes and amen. And one of the best ways that we can say yes and amen each week to the truth of God's word preached is by taking communion together. Because this is a meal that is our corporate yes and amen to the good work that Christ has accomplished. It's our yes and amen to the good work that Christ has begun, that God has begun in you. And it's a yes and amen to the good work that he will finish when Jesus declares and comes again, saying, I am making all things new. And so as you eat the bread this morning, a picture of Christ's body broken for you, and as you drink the cup this morning, a picture of Christ's blood shed for you, be refreshed. Be refreshed at the core of your being with the very presence of our God and Savior who is here with us, even in the midst of this meal, our God who will never leave you, our God who will never forsake you, and our God who will never, ever give up on you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we just ask you this morning not to come forward to take part in this meal, not because we want to make you feel awkward or weird, but because this meal is a declaration, it's a testifying to the fact that our only hope is Christ. And so if you're not yet at that point where your only hope is in Christ, I just want to invite you to hang out in your seat, but I want to invite you to not just sit there, but to consider what we've talked about this morning. That God can begin that good work in you to bring you into a relationship with him. And so if you're ready to start that relationship with Jesus, if you want that good work to begin, for God to renovate your life and make you a new creation in Christ, then just tell him that this morning as you sit in your seat. And then let somebody around you know 
so we can journey with you, we can encourage you, we can be that community together to walk with you in this. If you have questions about what it means to know Christ or follow Christ, that's what we're here for. We want to help you with that. So grab anyone that you see around you. Come chat with me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you and pray for you if you find yourself in that place. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the back, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and what our faithful Savior has done for you, that good work that he has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the letter to the Philippians. We thank you for the truth of verse 6, that even in just this short verse, God, that you can encourage our hearts this morning. But I just want to pray simply this, that you'd help us to actually believe it. That whether we've heard this for the first time today, or maybe we've heard this many times before, maybe we even have verse 6 memorized, but God, would you help us to actually believe it in the core of our being, in the depths of our heart? God, would you help us to rest then because of it? Would you help us to rejoice because of it? Would you help us to view ourselves and others different because of it? God, help us to be a people who pray for ourselves and one another that we would love more, that we would increase in our knowledge and all discernment so that we can know what is pure and blameless. We can be pure and blameless. We can know what is excellent. We can know what is right. We can bear out fruit of righteousness and glorify you until Jesus comes again. God, thank you that you are the one who began the work and you are the one who will see the work all the way through. So we praise you for that this morning. Help us to become more like our Savior. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives, individually and our life together as a church. May you be glorified in us so that we may glorify you in all that we do together. We praise you today and we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.